Last time we were in Roman North Africa, we looked at the impact that St. Augustine had on Christianity. Now we move over a thousand years to the Russian Empire's capital city of St. Petersburg. Guess who Sophie of Anhalt Zerbest was? Well, she was Catherine the Great, also known as Catherine II, who reigned between 1762 and 1796. She was born in the then Prussian, now Polish, town of Setten. Her daddy was a German prince. Although she was a princess, the family had limited wealth. Her heritage meant she was related to many other European nobility, such as the kings of Sweden. She also happened to be second cousin of the future Peter III, the future Tsar of Russia. She met Peter aged 10. He was probably 11 or 12 at the time. She found Peter actually detestable even at that young age. Young Sophie's marriage to Peter was not a standard one. It was born out of what is known as the Lupina Affair, an alleged conspiracy crafted by the diplomacy of Holstein, which was a German principality, and France at the Russian court, centered on one Natalia Lupina, who was a court official and a political conspirator. During Anna's reign, who was empress between 1730 and 1740, Natalia was considered a darling of the court in St. Petersburg. She also had numerous liaisons with important figures, including foreign men. However, Elizabeth ascended to the throne in 1741. She, Natalia, soon fell out with the new empress. This endeavour, or affair, aimed to strengthen the friendship between Russia and Prussia, weaken Austria's influence, and ultimately ruin the Chancellor Alexei Petrovich, uh, Bestuchev, I have no idea how I'm saying this, on whom Elizabeth, the Empress, relied and who was partisan to the Austrians. Are you still with me? If not, don't worry. Just know that the diplomatic intrigue that failed, mostly due to the intervention of Sophie's mother, Johanna Elizabeth of Holstein. Johanna, Sophie's mother, was highly ambitious both for herself and for her daughter, who she wanted to see installed as Empress of Russia. Although Empress Elizabeth, the current Empress of Russia, had a distaste for Johanna, she actually liked Sophie enough to allow marriage to the Grand Duke Peter, her son. Once Sophie arrived in Russia, around 15 years old at the time, she indulged the Empress, Peter, the Russian language, the people, anything, so that she could proudly wear that crown on her head. She wanted to be Russian. Not everything, however, went as swimmingly as she'd liked. In her memoirs, she actually states that she had a bout of pneumonia and then platyrus, an inflammation of the membranes around the lungs. Both of these nearly killed her. I can't pronounce platyrus. Eventually, in June 1744, she converted from Lutheran Christianity to Orthodox Christianity, taking the name Catherine. Peter and Catherine were actually married in 1745. After marriage, Peter and Catherine moved to the palace of Orhinbaum. Again, I'm saying this wrong. There, a young couple learned to govern in a smaller role as rulers of a region, trying to get them ready for when they do have to rule uh, the empire. However, that was the only success. The marriage itself was a failure. Peter, it is alleged, had mental health issues. He took to a mistress. Catherine, for her part, also picked up a lover. The Empress Elizabeth and Catherine eventually came to an agreement where Catherine could have liaisons with anyone she wanted as long as the heir was Peter's child. 
Catherine, in her memoirs to her son and future Tsar Paul, goes to pains to explain that he was indeed Peter's descendant. Although I'd say that a certain Mr. Sergei Soltikov, I do love that name, Soltikov, probably was Paul I's father. If so, Paul was descended from Sophie and Sergei. Technically, therefore, allegedly not descended from Empress Elizabeth or Peter the Great. So much for the Romanov bloodlines. We should also note that Catherine had numerous affairs of her own with many men over the years, both now and as Empress. By the way, her best friend was the sister of Peter's mistress. These days, I guess you'd call it an open marriage. In fact, so bitter was this marriage that when Catherine gave birth to a daughter who, by the way, sadly died in infancy, Peter claimed that he did not know whose it was. Rumour has it that she was even in a liaison with Francisco de Miranda, a South American revolutionary who visited her on his European travels. Catherine hated Peter. She did since she was 10 years old. He was an eccentric and a crackpot. Worse, he made policy revisions against many of the able working policies of Empress Elizabeth. Worst of all was his like for Prussia and his king, Frederick II. This wrecked any standing amongst the nobility that he had. Even six months in, Peter stayed at the Orenbaum Palace while Catherine stayed elsewhere. In fact, the situation at court got so bad that eventually a plot was hashed to rid Russia of Peter with Catherine at the helm, plus supporting act by her lover, Gregory Olov. There was a five-step plan. Step one. Catherine gives a speech asking soldiers to protect her from Peter. Step two. Peter is arrested. Step three. By pure chance, the clergy just happened to be there. Ordain Catherine as Catherine II as the sole ruler. Step four. Just to be sure, Peter III was forced to sign an instrument of abdication. And to be doubly sure, step five. A week or so after the abdication, the former Tsar was found dead. Oh, what bad luck. At the same time, there was only one other real claimant to the throne. That was Ivan VI. He was Tsar for about a year from when Empress Anna died in 1740. The Empress Elizabeth took the throne in a coup and threw the young one-year-old Tsar Ivan into jail with his family. She gave strict instructions that if anyone even tried to get in or out, the boy was to be killed. Well, when Catherine became empress, Ivan, now in his early 20s, somehow was found dead. Two words for Catherine. Ruthless brilliance. Now let's get to Catherine's reign that lasted 34 years. I'm going to break this reign down into five main topics that I think are generally noteworthy outside of her private life. Number one, treatment of the serfs, number two, arts and education, number three, religious issues, number four, the economy, and number five, foreign policy. Let's start with treatment of the serfs. In case you don't know, a serf is essentially a slave by another name, an extremely poor agricultural worker who is tied to the land. So if you buy some land, you get the serf. You could almost do anything to a serf with the impunity, except kill them, since technically 
they were state property. Under Catherine, the life of the serf did not improve. They probably got worse. Ironically, a Russian serf's condition at the time was potentially worse than a slave in, say, a French colony. Children of serfs became serf themselves. Not good, never good. Arts and education. Catherine was a patron of the arts, who essentially also embodied the Russian Enlightenment when the government proactively began to invest and promote the arts and sciences. Catherine considered herself to be an enlightened despot, essentially a monarch with absolute power who was a patron of the arts, science and education. That's the enlightenment bit. Let's list out a few accomplishments. The Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg started with Catherine's personal collection and then grew. It consisted of paintings, sculptures and books. She also collected Chinese art. She brought leading scientists to Russia. She worked with Voltaire, who in turn admired her. In fact, his books went to her library after his death. Catherine held Western European philosophies and culture in high regard. She encouraged Russians to delve deeper into classical and European influences. Catherine became a great patron of the Russian opera and she set up an education commission for 5 to 18-year-old non-serf children. Moving on to religious issues. Catherine herself had ditched Lutheran Christianity and embraced Russian orthodoxy. To some degree, she showed some general indifference to religion. On the positive side, she did stand up for Christians who may have been harassed in the Ottoman Empire. She also let Jesuits seek asylum inside Russia. All that said, to fund her wars, and we will get to foreign policy in a bit, she nationalized many church lands, ultimately banning religious dissent after the onset of the French Revolution. She actually closed 569 of 554 monasteries. To some degree, she treated orthodoxy no better or worse than any other Christian denomination, or for that matter, Islam. Speaking of Islam, Muslims. Catherine was generally accepting of Muslims in the empire. Although the conversion of Christianity was considered a welcome outcome, and many did get the benefits of conversion, she had a liberal view of Russian Muslims and allowed them protection and a seat at the table. Jews, however, mm-mm, not really. Anti-Semitism ran deep in Russia. Until bits of Poland was actually absorbed, there was hardly any Jews in the empire. Once they did come, they were treated as a separate people. In 1785, Catherine declared Jews foreigners. And in 17. 17- 70, sorry, 1794 doubled their taxes. Not great. Moving on to the economy. What you need to know is when Catherine took over, Russia's economic activity was nowhere near Western European countries. The Russians kept a medieval-style serf system with no real reform, no real industrialization, and had ambitions that equaled those of the Western European economies, but those economies had the ability to back up those ambitions. For her part, Catherine did support financial reforms. She had to, she needed to. She had wars to fight and ambitions to meet, which leads us on to the final point. Foreign policy. Her grandson, Tsar Nicholas I, felt her reign did not meet its foreign policy 
policy goals. But to be fair, she presided when Russia became a kingmaker in European circles and a global player. It was Catherine's ambitions that put Russia firmly on the map of world affairs. Let's break it down into five small bite-sized chunks. We're going to start with Sweden. Between 1788 and 1790, Russia fought a war against Sweden, a conflict instigated by a cousin, King Gustav III, who expected to win. But Russia's Baltic fleet checked the Swedes in the Battle of Hogland, halting any Swedish advance. Denmark then declared war on Sweden in 1788, also known as the Theatre War. After the defeat of the Russian fleet at the Battle of Svenskund in 1790, I hope I'm not saying that right, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, the parties signed the Treaty of Valarla, 14th August 1790, returning all conquered territories to their respective owners and confirming the Treaty of Abo, a Roman-style tribute was paid to Gustav III. Next, the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans were relatively less powerful than they once had been, while the Russians had become more powerful than they once were. During Catherine's reign, Russia took protectorship of, and I'm air-quoting, the Orthodox Christians of the region, including in the Ottoman Empire. Geographically, the Russo-Turkish Wars of 1792-1794 led to further expansion into Turkish lands, pushed Russia south to what is now southern Ukraine and the, and the Crimea. This was formulated by the Treaty of Jassy in 1792. What about Persia, i.e. Iran? Catherine had a treaty of protection with Georgia. When Iran invaded Georgia, the Russians went to war. The objective was to replace the anti-Russian king, Aga Muhammad Khan, with someone pro-Russia. The Russian advance went swimmingly, and they pushed down to the territory of modern-day Azerbaijan. The general in charge was the powerful Zubov family, one of whom was actually one of Catherine's lover, who her son Paul, by the way, hated. Unexpectedly, during the campaign, Catherine suddenly died, and her son Paul I became emperor and decided to retreat. This campaign met a short end, and not everyone was happy. What about the Far East? Under Catherine, Russia expanded eastwards, opening trade relations with Japan and rivalry hostility with China's King Qing Dynasty. Catherine herself did not much like the Chinese emperor and held a disdain for him. The Dunzar genocide in China forced many to move into the Russian Empire from China, causing some headaches for Catherine in the area. Poland. Poland is a country and a territory that since the French Revolution, right through to the Cold War, has been at the centerpiece of European history, especially war history. Without going into too much detail, Catherine and Frederick II of Prussia decided to partition the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as it was known then. Stanislaw 
Pontiowski, one of her lovers, had been placed on the Polish throne in 1764. She became protector, causing a Polish rebellion backed by the French. Eventually, after the Polish-Russian War of 1793 and a rebellion in 1794, Russia, Prussia and Austria completed the eventual division. Under Catherine, Russia became a global power, one to be reckoned with and one who others took seriously. Catherine set the stage for Russia to dictate global and European politics for at least the next two centuries. She essentially expanded Russia's border further into Europe, out to Japan, China and south to the Black Sea. In short, Russia's borders, as we roughly know it today, were set during Catherine's time. Catherine II died in 1796. Diagnosis, stroke. Sophie was supposed to marry the Tsar of Russia and be the queen consort. Instead, she overthrew him and became the sole ruler. Not just any ruler, but one of Russia's greatest. She did not see her son Paul as a worthy successor and remained unable to remove him from the succession in time in favour of her grandson. Paul's succession proved poor. He was assassinated after just five years. Very few reached the same level of greatness as Catherine did or would since. And now time to rate and grade Catherine. In terms of impact, out of 10, I'm going to give her a 9. For Russia and for the empires surrounding Russia, Catherine's reign was highly impactful. Inspiration, I'm going to give her an 8 out of 10. She led Russia during its best years. It expanded in both land and in influence. Was she born to power? I'm giving her a 6 out of 10 because she was born to power, but in a minor royal capacity. And she gets bonus points for being an outsider in Russia, indeed a foreigner and a woman. Here, higher score means not born into royalty. So 6 is on the better side. Legitimacy. I've given her an 8 out of 10. Yes, she left a succession problem in Paul, who was a poor candidate, but for her own legitimacy, she earned her legitimacy. Bonus points. So here we go from a negative 20 to a positive 20. I'm going to give her a positive 9. So wars and killing and the conflict and things like that, they're normal for most rulers at the time and before and since, in fact. So I'm going to have to discount that component of it. But I don't want to ding her too much. She did do a lot for the country. However, the treatment of the Jews and the serfs did not go according to what I would think is the way that she could have dealt it. She could have done that way better, but she didn't. She doesn't go into negative territory here, but because of what she did for Russia, I'm going to give her a plus nine. The total she got then is 40 out of 70, which is 57% and a B. Not too bad. Not great, but not too bad. Thank you for your time. Check me out at the Cinepod. 
on Twitter. And see you next time. Bye-bye.